Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? I hope well. On Thursday afternoon, or I guess Thursday morning, I had breakfast with Matt Worley, and we're sitting there talking, and I really wasn't paying attention to my phone. And when I'm in conversations with people, I try to put my phone away, and I just try not to look at it. And after we got done, I had 19 messages and 10 phone, missed phone calls, and the mayor had just come out that we were moving back into phase two. And by the end of that day of trying to figure out what we were going to do for this worship service, I felt like I was a Gatorade bottle with about a fourth of the Gatorade left in it that got all shook up. And I was exhausted and tired and frustrated and disappointed and angry. But at the same time, and several have said it today, both Joseph Trell have, that last song, New Wine, of being pressed down and being shaken. The Lord truly does press us down. But this is an incredible opportunity for us to truly seek his face, to look to him, to worship him, and to allow him to have his will in our lives so that Jesus is glorified. For those who are new, my name is Doug Jones. I'm the pastor here at the church at Woodbine. And we are so glad that you've joined us this morning to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of our greatest prayers is that you truly would sense and experience the love of our Heavenly Father. He loves you so much. He loves you with an eternal love. And He is glorious and wonderful. And He's calling each and every one of us to Himself so that we can have this eternal, intimate, personal relationship with Him through Jesus. We're going through the book of Nehemiah. So I want to invite you now to open your book, your Bibles, if you have it, or turn your cell phone on to Nehemiah chapter 2. And I'm going to do a brief little review, but I do have just a couple of announcements to make just about all that's going on. You might be wondering if you're watching us, you might be seeing a couple heads in the sanctuary. It's like, I thought that we weren't gathering. I thought it was pure live stream. What is live stream? And this is our live stream. For the past four months, we've been recording our services on Wednesday evening. But with all that's gone on, we've got live streams set up. And so we will be doing our services like this. And there are a few people here in the sanctuary, our worship team, most of our staff, and a few family members. And so for all of you all, welcome. If you see me staring at the camera the whole time, it's because the majority of our, of our congregation is watching and worshiping with us online. But if you guys see me looking around, it's because there are a few people here in the sanctuary. And right now, and I only want to give dates because I feel like we're a yo-yo going up and down. For the next two to three Sundays, we will, be, we will be worshiping like this, still online. And so we want to welcome you. And we're so glad that you're here. But we will let you know as soon as possible when we will again gather all of us together here at the church at Woodbine. But for the meantime, we'll continue as is, worshiping him in our homes, with family, with our small group, with however you feel the Lord is leading you to worship each and every Sunday morning at 1045. So we are so glad that you're here. So Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to get some exercise. I do want to invite everybody to stand back up again. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 2, the whole chapter. And this is God's word for God's people. Nehemiah 2, verse 1. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad? When you aren't sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king, 
And if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that, that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my request, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there for three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us, grant us success. His servants will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome day. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And we ask, Father, that you would give me your words. Father, speak to us through your word and bring encouragement and strength and comfort, and conviction, and transformation to everyone who reads this passage, who hears my words. May my words be yours and nothing else. Touch us and transform us, and bring real, true Holy Spirit revival into our lives, into our church, into the city, to this country, the world. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. A quick review. We're looking at the story of Nehemiah. And the title of this series is Laying the Groundwork for Revival and Renewal. And we're looking at the life of Nehemiah. In the past, in two weeks ago, we talked about, okay, how do we build, how is the groundwork for revival to happen? Well, first and foremost, it starts with having a vision of who God is. It's seeing him on his throne. And we saw that in the book of Revelation chapter 7. 
where John saw a vision where there was a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group, and they were gathered around the throne worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. And for there to be true revival, we, truly, we need to see who God is. Seated on his throne, we need to see Jesus and have a clear vision of who he is. Last week, we looked at how do we respond when we, when we receive bad news. And we looked at Nehemiah, and when he's being the cupbearer, and we'll talk more about the cupbearer today, but as the cupbearer living over 900 miles away from Jerusalem, being a Jew himself, yet he and his family never lived in Jerusalem, they never lived in Israel, and his people were scattered. And some of his fellow Jewish brothers came back, and he asked how things were in Jerusalem. And they said they were in great disgrace because the wall had been torn down, the gates were burned, and the people were in utter ruin. And Nehemiah responded in humility, repentance, confession, prayer, and worship. And that's how we need to respond. Right now during this time of COVID with the pandemic and everything going on, how are we responding? Are we shaking our fists at heaven and are we complaining to the Lord? Or, or are we bowing down in worship and humility and repentance, seeking his face, looking to him? Today we jump to chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And just so you know, chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's about four months that pass from what we see in chapter 1 to chapter 2. And here we have Nehemiah. He's the cupbearer. And you might think, oh, he's a little lowly old cupbearer. The cupbearer was responsible for the life of the king. This is King Artaxerxes, the king of all Persia. And Nehemiah is his cupbearer. Nehemiah is responsible for everything that king drinks. He's not just the cupbearer, but he's one of the king's most trusted confidants in, in his entire kingdom. And the king is basically putting his life into Nehemiah's hands. So what does that say about Nehemiah? He's a man of integrity, of trust, of confidence. This king is truly trusting in Nehemiah for his well-being. And it's an important role. And Nehemiah is with the king all the time. Not only in great banquets, but in his home, making sure that what the king is served to drink is not poisonous and making sure that there is no fear of being executed or betrayed or a coup or poisoned or assassinated. So King Maya truly has the ear and heart of the king and the king truly trusts him. And after four months of praying and seeking the Lord's face about what to do with the fact that Jerusalem is destroyed and the walls have been destroyed and that the Jews are returning to Israel. They are returning to Jerusalem. But just so you know, if you don't know any of the history of Israel, after God pulled Israel out of Egypt and he brought them to the promised land and the Israel established itself as a nation, as a kingdom, for centuries they were ruled by kings. But very rarely would the people of God follow the Lord and walk in obedience. And in the old covenant, God was very clear that if they would follow and obey him, he would bless his people, the Jews. But God was also very clear in the Old Testament that if they would turn from him and disobey him and not follow him and not follow the covenant, he would scatter them throughout the nations. And that's exactly what happened. In 586 B.C., Babylon entered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city walls, and exiled tens of thousands of Jewish people out of Israel. But 70 years later, the Lord opened those doors for, G for the Jewish people to return back to their city. The temple was rebuilt, and there was a mini revival that was happening, but they were still in disarray. 
And Nehemiah lived about a hundred years after the destruction of the temple. And here is the cupbearer. And we see it here and we just read it. But he's serving the king and the queen is with them. So it's not some banquet. The king is probably in his house, just a normal meal. And for four months from the time Nehemiah heard what was going on to this event right here in chapter 2, he's faithfully serving the king. And Nehemiah is faithfully praying to the Lord, what should I do? And God is downloading into Nehemiah a vision and a plan to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And as he's serving the king, the king notices that Nehemiah is sad. And he asks him, what's wrong? And if you see here, what is, how does Nehemiah respond? And at the end of verse 2, the king asks, What is wrong? Why are you sad when you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And how does it say here at the end of verse 2? It says, I was overwhelmed with fear. Why would Nehemiah be overwhelmed with fear? Well, if the king has never seen him sad before, what is going on? Is there a coup? Is someone trying to betray the king is someone trying to kill the king because as the cupbearer Nehemiah was responsible for the king's life maybe Nehemiah knew that something was going on and the king was in grave danger and for the fact that the king asked Nehemiah what's wrong with you you're not sick and yet you have sadness of face it's sadness of heart what's going on and it says Nehemiah he was overwhelmed with fear have you ever been overwhelmed with fear what was your response how do you respond And he replied, and Nehemiah, we see for the next many verses, Nehemiah responds with unbelievable humility and boldness at the same time. And I think that comes because of his life of prayer, trusting in the Lord. And he says, may the king live forever. And he gains back the confidence and trust of the king. May the king live forever. When my ancestors, when their graves are lying open and their cities are destroyed and the capital city, the walls are destroyed, he says, send me back so that I can rebuild it. The king asks in verse 4, he says, what is your request? And Nehemiah does one of these missile prayers, one of these bullet prayers. So I pray to the God of the heavens. Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever shot those prayers up when you felt like you're in desperate need? There's nothing wrong with praying like that. But I'll tell you this, if that's your only prayer life, we're lacking much. Remember, Nehemiah has been praying and fasting for months. And so he prays to the God of the heavens. And then he says here in verse 5, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor, send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, and let me rebuild it. You see, for four months, Nehemiah was developing a plan to go back to rebuild the city walls. Now, you might be wondering, why are city walls so important? When I hear the the phrase, rebuild the wall, build the wall, what do you think of? And I shared this last week. I think of the wall between us and Mexico and the huge political fight that's going on. But that has nothing to do with the wall here in Nehemiah chapter 2. You see, back in the ancient days, centuries, millennials ago, cities that did not have a wall were utterly and utter oh, I can't think of the right word, were completely exposed to destruction, to defeat, to every kind of evil. And I kind of shared it last week. Let's just imagine that you're living in your home or your apartment and you have doorways and you have windows, but there are no doors and there are no windows. There's no protection. And let's just pretend that anybody and everybody has access to anything and everything that you own. They have access to your bank account, access to your wallet, 
access to your car, access to your house. They can come in and they can take anything they want out of your house. They could even take you. They could beat you. They could punish you. They could rob from you. They could beat your wife or your, or your husband or your children. They could do anything to you. And let's just pretend, too, that your job, if you have a job, is not secure. You could be fired or you could lose your job at any moment, just like that. You have no insurance, no health insurance, no life insurance, no car insurance, no house insurance. Let's just put all of that into one bucket. That's what it would be like living in these ancient cities without a wall. Because the wall brought protection. It brought security from outside invasion. And so when Nehemiah heard that the walls had been destroyed of Jerusalem, he knew that his people were utterly, utterly unprotected and that their lives were in peril. And he so loved his homeland, he so loved his people that he poured his heart out to God for months asking what he should do. And in this moment, in this God-ordained moment right here was his opportunity. And he goes on to share in verse 7 and 8, what he wanted. If he says, if it pleased the king, write letters, letters of authority to give to Nehemiah so that when he travels the 900 miles back, when he travels back to Jerusalem, there's authority from the king that he's supposed to be there. And on top of that, look what the king gave him. The king gave him cavalry and infantry, authority and power and protection. Nehemiah even asked letters for the man who oversaw the king's forest in Israel. So we see that Nehemiah even did homework and he was very attentive to details. I am not a detail person. I hate details. I can see them, but so much of the time I don't even know what to do with details. But details are important because with the minor details of life, if we, if we overlook them or if we, don't t- if we don't take care of the details of life, things can fall apart. And here Nehemiah has all the details of his plan to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And then here in verse, at the very end of verse 8, look what it says. The king granted my request for the gracious hand of my God. When you read the book of Nehemiah, you will see that phrase, the gracious hand of God was upon me. Is God's gracious hand upon you? And then we get to verse 9. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. So Nehemiah then travels, and it takes about three months to travel those 900 miles from Susa all the way back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah has been in prayer and preparation for seven months about rebuilding this wall. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he hands the governors the letters from the king And it says, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pressure, to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, God's people, they were greatly displeased. We'll see that later on in the book of Nehemiah. But there will be opposition. If you want to live a godly life, scripture is very clear that you'll be persecuted. Jesus himself said, the world will hate us because they first hated him. If we want to love and follow Jesus, we face opposition from this world and from the evil one, Satan. And Nehemiah knew it. He knew that there would be opposition. And this is just the foreshadow of what we'll see in the years to come. In verse 11 through 20, and we're going to go through it quickly. But after Nehemiah arrived, and I'm not going to read it all, but after Nehemiah arrived, 
It says he stayed there for three days and he hadn't told anyone his plan. And I wonder, why hasn't Nehemiah told anybody about rebuilding? It's such a huge project. Why is he waiting? And it just makes me wonder the importance of being patient, waiting for God's purposes and God's timing. He's waiting. I'm sure he's resting. Testing. Okay, who's in favor of the Jewish people and who isn't? Who are my enemies and who aren't? Who are the people that are open to God's plan that he's put in his heart? So during those three days, he's praying and he's waiting. And then it says at night, he gets up and he takes a few people with him. He still hasn't told them his plan. And it says that he inspects the wall. And I love the details of, this, of these verses here where it talks about going through the fountain gate and the king's pool and the dung gate and the valley gate. That's the southern part of the city of Israel. And it's where the Kidron Valley is. And it's a very difficult place to actually rebuild the wall. But he's inspecting it all, looking to see actually how hard is the work going to be. It doesn't describe the northern side of the city. But most archaeologists believe that on the northern side of Jerusalem, everything was destroyed. And so it talks about him going out and inspecting the wall quietly with these, with these people that he's with. And then it says here in verse 16, and this is the important part here, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. For I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. But after Nehemiah assesses the work that has to be done, and remember, he's been planning for seven months. Verse 17, so I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. In order for us to truly grow spiritually, in order for us to truly walk in truth, we have to be humble enough to recognize how are we truly and to take the mask off that so many of us wear and acknowledge where we're weak and where we're wrong, where we're selfish, where we lack and where we need to grow more. And Nehemiah is calling his people, look at how we are. We're lying in ruins. And it makes me wonder, and I haven't thought about this till right now, I wonder if the Jews who had lived in Jerusalem, if they'd been there for 5, 10, 15, 30 years, if they had just grown accustomed to the fact that, well, well, we just live in this city with no walls. And if they've grown apathetic and complacent, blind to their situation, how easy it is for us to grow complacent within how we're truly living. Are you complacent in your walk with Jesus? Have you grown apathetic with the trials and difficulties you face? Have you grown hard-hearted? Are you guarding bitterness and resentment in your soul? The first step to becoming free of any of those heart attitudes is to acknowledge that you are. And then Nehemiah says right here, he says, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we may no longer be a disgrace. Verse 18, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been with me, on me, and what the king had said. Could you imagine the testimony that Nehemiah was giving? Did Nehemiah even imagine that the king would not only even let him go back to Jerusalem, leaving him from being the cupbearer, one of the most trusted positions in the entire kingdom, 
only letting him go back to Jerusalem, but sending him with cavalry and infantry and letters of authority to not only go and to have the authority to rebuild this city, but also to take the king's timber and giving him those resources. You see, when we hear the power of when people share what God is doing in their lives, it should inspire us and think, if God is doing that in their lives, he can do it in mine. The power of testimony. And so Nehemiah is encouraging these people living in Jerusalem. He says, look what God is doing in our lives. Look what he's done in my life through the king, a pagan who wasn't even a lover of Yahweh, was giving him not only the authority, but the resources to rebuild the capital city where the temple was. The people responded, verse 18, they said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. In closing, we see Sambalat and Tobiah, also Geshem. They despised Nehemiah and the Jews. And they asked, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah responded in verse 20. I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens. Our eyes have got to be fixed on the God of heavens. And that's our Lord and Savior Jesus. Is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building. But you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Our eyes have got to be fixed on the Lord Jesus. In closing, I want to ask you to stand. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. But there's five challenge questions I want to give to you. And in the same way that Nehemiah inspected the walls, and he went all around inspecting the walls to truly see what was going on, and he had to focus on the details. And it's very important for us, in order to lay the groundwork of worship and revival and renewal in our lives, it starts with the vision of our Heavenly Father. It starts with us responding in humility and prayer and worship and confession. But there's five questions I want to ask you now, and it'll be posted on our Facebook page as well. But here's question number one. How are you being changed by Jesus? How are you being changed by Jesus? The second question is this. How are you being discipled? And who are you discipling? You see, to walk in this spiritual life, to follow Jesus, we're his disciples. And we need people to disciple us and to pour into us, but we also need to pour into others. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it receives, but it never gives water out. Water doesn't flow out. So how are you being discipled? And who are you discipling? The third question is this. When and where are you experiencing life-giving biblical community? We cannot live this Christian life on our own. We need other brothers and sisters to gather around us and truly experience life-giving biblical community. The fourth question is this. Who are the lost people you're praying for and having gospel conversations with? Joseph challenged us with that earlier in the offertory. And number five. What is breaking your heart in the world? And what are you doing about it? What is breaking your heart in this world? And what are you doing about it? In the same way Nehemiah inspected the walls, we need to inspect our own lives. 
These five questions will be on our Facebook page for us to ponder this week as we ask Holy Spirit to truly inspect our lives individually and corporately as a church and allow Him to touch and transform us.